0: Good Sunday morning, Iowa. It's Dr. Rick Godding. Happy New Year again, and thank you for spending some time with me here. Um, I had a very nice break over between Christmas and New Year's and just spent time with the family. Didn't do much. Did go to an Iowa wild game, which was fun. If you haven't been down there, you should go. It's a pretty fun, it's a pretty fun deal. And uh, one thing that's nice about Des Moines is the, uh, sort of minor league pro sports because i like pro sports but it's such a if you go i mean first of all you got to go all the way to kansas city or you know chicago st louis somewhere like that uh, or minneapolis to to see an actual pro sports game and then in and out and it costs a ton of money it's just nice to go watch some you know some people play the sport and hockey's you know, I'm not such an aficionado of hockey that I can tell a huge difference between what's happening in an NHL game and what's happening in an Iowa Wild game. I mean, clearly, you know, you can see that it's a different level if you're really paying attention, but, you know, they're playing pretty good hockey down there, and it's, it was a lot of fun, and uh, cooked a big Christmas dinner, and uh, had uh, prime rib, and had some friends over and that's pretty much all we did. Well, we did go to our neighbor's house for New Year's Eve, but, uh, which was fun, but pretty much just kind of relaxed a bit. It's been the last, uh, quarter or maybe even half of last year was really a grind. And, uh, so it was nice. So I hope everybody got a time to relax and enjoy and spend some time with family. And now here we are in that first week. And it's, you know, it's interesting because you can't really tell yet that the days are getting longer. I think it'll be another couple, three weeks before we start seeing that there's progress being made. So we're still in that sort of midwinter, dark at, certainly dark by five anyway, which remember to get your vitamin D (laughs) and you watch out for seasonal affective disorder. You know, people tend to get kind of in poor spirits around this time of year, especially I think around and after the holidays. So keep tabs on that. And obviously it's time to either commit or recommit to your health. Um, that's, it's kind of a big thing. Obviously all the gyms are running specials cause they know a lot of people are going to make that commitment and it's hard to keep it going. I will say that I have a much better foundation starting this year than I did last year from a fitness level, because I spent the entire last year hitting the gym pretty hard. And previous to that, I had uh, I had just been walking on the treadmill, and so I started doing some pretty high-intensity stuff on the bike, because running on the treadmill started to hurt my knees, because I'm not built to run. B.B. King used to say, I'm built for comfort and not for speed, <laughs> but, uh, but I sort of... Uh, really started lifting the weights a lot, and that's really helped a lot, because one thing that people don't realize is how really, if you can add in weightlifting, and it doesn't have to be heavy, if you can add in any type of weightlifting to gain lean muscle mass, it's going to help everything. Specifically, uh, there's been a lot of research that shows that diabetics can really help improve how they're managing their sugar by increasing the lean muscle mass. So weight lifting rather than just cardio because the insulin glucagon axis is a lot of that metabolism occurs in the muscles. So, so yeah, here we are heading into, or I guess we're already trudging through the first part of the new year. I've not written 2022 yet on anything that I have signed and and dated, which is good because typically I'm doing that at least for a week or two, sometimes longer. At least one time during the day, I'll catch myself writing the previous year. But, uh, but it is, it's a you know, it's also a, a time that we really can be hopeful. You know, I hope we're hoping, you know, that's that's one thing about this, this time of year is there's you know, spring's coming, winter's started, but you know, at least uh, the days have turned and we can hope that you know that this year will be better than last year and that maybe we can get some of the big big problems in the world get a little bit better and then maybe we don't start any new big problems this year. That's always that's always a hope. And it's funny, you know, as you as your kids get older, my daughters are twelve and fourteen now, and, you know, it's an interesting balance, you know, you want to try to then you know, try to make them aware of how the world works, but you don't want them to be you know, you don't want to say, "Well, we're." Henry Kissinger says we're closer to a nuclear war than we were during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Those aren't the kind of things we definitely aren't the kind of things you necessarily need to have the kids explore at a deep level. But you do want them to be aware of the kind of things that are going on in the world. It's funny because, for me, anyway, when the kids were, let's say, ten and eight, I didn't want them to think about anything like that. Just enjoy pure childhood and, uh, you know, that's one of the gifts. I think the greatest gift you can give your kid is just an an innocent childhood that allows them to just really be a kid and not have to worry about bigger issues. And some people would say that you ought to start them out earlier with that kind of an understanding and, yeah, I mean, I get it. I understand that. But to me, I think there's plenty of time to figure out how you want to approach understanding the world once you get a little bit older. And I don't think really until you get almost really into high school that you really need to be bothered that much with it. And then really not to get to college, you have to really grind it out and, and try to super understand things. So just let them be kids. That's because childhood is one of those, one of those things. And, and, uh, I mean, it never comes back and, uh, and yeah, so there, and so I, I actually received a call over the break from an old patient of mine, friend of mine, and I had done uh, two of the resurfacing shoulders on him. Uh, I think it was three and five, maybe it's four and six years ago, and then did one of his knees. And he's he's a carpenter, like a union carpenter, uh, doing kind of big big heavy stuff and saw him call and said oh boy I hope everything's all because he's got three you know he's a carpenter he's got those three joints he said yeah everything's doing great it's just that other knee so that was good but it's good to you know kind of get feedback from these people where you put this shoulder in and you tell them hey go do whatever you want I mean on the one hand you kind of assume that if you're not hearing from them they're doing fine but it's nice to come sometimes see people back a few years later and they say yeah man this is doing everything you said it was going to do uh, I've had no problems i'm I'm working hard doing relatively heavy lifting stuff and uh without problems and so that's it's always nice it's always nice to get that feedback later on and that's that is why I use the the arthrosurface resurfacing shoulders because if this patient as well as many of my other patients were to have had a regular shoulder replacement they just wouldn't be able to do their job. It would have to. That would be the end of their career, and that's that's really what uh, what it's all about for me is to to be able to get people back to doing what they really want to do, or allow them to continue doing what they're doing, and uh, continue to see more of the balloons back. The balloon is the in space balloon, and it's you know it's got a, a, a kind of a narrow set of indications. So you would do this in somebody who has a massive rotator cuff tear, which is not fixable or a large rotator cuff tear. And they are not in a position where they can have it fixed. Like I have a guy who's a trucker and he works for himself. And he said, listen, I got to get a few years out of this. There's no way in the world I can shut down my trucking for six weeks. I just can't possibly do that. And I get that. So we put a uh, put a balloon in his shoulder. So the shoulder is the ball in the socket, and then above the ball in the socket, and the sock the socket is in the scapula bone, the the, co- the the shoulder blade. So the socket is a just a one little area of the shoulder blade bone, and then right above that is the acromion, which is the bone that sort of protects that construct from the top. So the rotator cuff runs underneath the acromion, and so the balloon sits in between the acromion bone and the humerus, which is, of course, the ball side of the uh, shoulder. And it keeps any rubbing from happening, and it sort of keeps the, the ball down in its anatomic position. And so I started using these last year. but very, very excited about it. We, I was wanting to use them a long time before that, but it's really interesting how some of these things happen is they didn't have a code for it, And because they didn't have a code for it, it threw off the billing. And so I wasn't able, and not for me, but just for the hospital to be able to get paid to have had the surgery done at all. So once they finally got the code out there, we were able to start doing them. And so I've done a few of them now. And I talked about this before, but for those of you who weren't listening to that show, one thing you cannot have a lot of is arthritis in the shoulder. If you're going to do this balloon, if the balloon is just for a rotator cuff tear, when the rotator cuff, again, is the tendons that move the shoulder around, and you can't really have a lot of ball and socket arthritis because if you do, then these don't work all that well. Well, sometimes you get in there and you see a little bit more of that arthritis than you thought based on the X-ray and the MRI, and I've had a couple patients who had a little bit more arthritis than we thought, and they aren't not. They don't think the balloon has helped them all that much, and so I'm just a little. I'm now I'm really a lot more vigilant about saying, man, it's got to look perfect. Shoulders got as far as arthritis goes, the shoulders got to look perfect, and for those patients, again, that it's just done really, really well, and so I'm excited about that. And again, I what, what I was saying on my one of the shows towards the end of the year was that the one thing about this year. In orthopedics, is there seems like every year there's been something really big, and I haven't seen that thing for this year yet. Of course, the year is early, and again, what I tend to do is, you know, listen to if a rep with a new product that sounds promising wants to talk to me, I sit down and talk to them. And then, a lot of times, you have to really think about what makes sense and understand that these products come out, and even if they're FDA approved sometimes they don't turn out all that well. And so how do you avoid doing a bunch of surgeries and then having to go back and redo them or something like that? And my approach to it is if it's something where you're really changing a big part of what you do, for instance, so the resurfacing shoulder, I wanted to see some early results from that once I was happy with those early results. And I'm talking about two to three years. Because kind of what you're looking for is you don't want you want to make sure there's not a bunch of early failures. And so because it was so groundbreaking for the patients, I went ahead. I mean, because I mean, this is really the difference between somebody being able to do the job that they have after having had a shoulder replacement or, or not. And so there's a big difference. You know this wasn't, well, you can't do everything you wanted to do, but you'll feel better. That's what was already out there. That's the standard shoulder. This one is you can do anything you want. And so once that early data came out, and it was really more three to five years before I started doing it. On the other hand, for instance, the Regenitin, as soon as I saw the early clinical data on that, because you don't, the Regenitin is the patch that we put on the rotator cuff. And it, sort of thickens up the cuff and makes it stronger as it heals in. Now, I looked at that and I thought, well, there's not a lot of drawback to this. I mean, you're not going to have a big problem with this. Some of the things where were big problems have arisen is a few years back, the metal on metal hip replacements were the hot thing. And then it turned out that a lot of those people were having real big problems with the with the metal metal particles, and some of them would even have systemic illnesses coming from the metal particles. And so, of course, you know, I just never did get involved in that, and I was really glad that I didn't. And there was another one where, well, this was maybe ten years back. It got very popular when you had somebody who had what's called an unstable shoulder, so a shoulder that would either continue to dislocate or partially dislocate. And what people were doing at the time, this technique was described as you would go in with a scope and then heat up the tissue and tighten it down, just kind of make it scar down. And that never sounded like a good idea to me. And so I ended up not doing any of those, not even one. And turned out that a lot of those fell apart and ended up having to have big, huge reconstructive surgeries. So it's you know it's it's tough when, you know, you want to be, or for me anyway, want to be progressive and move forward and not be doing something the old way when everybody's been doing it the new way for five years. And so, for, so another another example is the superior capsule reconstruction. That was a no-brainer. As soon as I saw that, I said, I'm trying that. And that's where we put the graft from the top of the ball to the top of the socket in a situation where the patient has no repairable rotator cuff. So the cuff is so torn and the tissue is so gone that there's no chance of repairing it. Well, that was easy for me because I thought, okay, so if that doesn't work, what happens? Well, you still would then get what's called a reverse total shoulder replacement, which is still an option for those patients. And so... I read the early reports on that, and I jumped right on that. And I've been doing those since 2015, 14, 15. So good six, seven years I've been doing those and done hundreds of them. And they're just a game-changing operation because previously, if you had a massive rotator cuff tear that was not fixable, the only other option was either live with it or do a reverse total shoulder replacement. And a reverse total shoulder replacement limits you severely in what you can do for the rest of your life. Uh, Your range of motion is limited, the amount you can lift is limited. So all these things have kind of come up and, you know, just kind of wondering what's going to, what's going to appear in my office this year. Because, you know, I look at uh, the research, but oftentimes before there's a ton of research on something, there's maybe one study out and you know if you don't read all the journals all the time and I I mean there's a dozen orthopedic journals I don't read every article in each one every month so you know when these things first come out sometimes the only way you get to hear about them is from the the rep who is selling them and then you have to have a very careful eye because their job is to sell that thing (laughs) and so and they've been told by the company that makes it how great it is right so, and it's nothing nefarious. It's just that if your job is to sell something and your company tells you it's good, you're going to go tell the doctor it's good and sell it. So it's a balance. It's, it's a, uh, it's one of the things about specifically orthopedics, but I think medicine in general, you know, for, for your primary care doc, it's mostly, here's a new pill. This is what, here's a couple studies that show. And that would be, for me, that I would be a lot more worried about that because, Gosh, medications seem like, you know, a higher potential for long-term poor outcomes that are not easily recognizable early, but with an orthopedic device or technique, you can kind of run it through your head and say, all right, well, so here's the risks. I mean, if, if this thing doesn't work out, where is the patient? I always want to not burn bridges. Where, where is the patient if this procedure or technique doesn't work out? Are they worse off? How much worse off? You know, that kind of stuff. So it's just it's just one, one of the things it's one of the occupational facets that that we have to deal with all the time and then also remembering, you know, I still even though some <laughs> some medical schools don't take the hippocratic oath anymore because patriarchy or something. Anyway, uh I still follow my oath and that is first do no harm. So anything you can do avoid doing harm to your patient. So that's just my uh, first, well, second rant show of the new year. But uh, but I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to having a, a good year. I'm working here at St. Anthony's and having, having a good year on the show. Try to get some interesting stuff in here. Maybe have some more patient guests on. And uh, maybe have something new to tell you. But certainly there's enough uh, to talk about for a long time with what we're already doing. So thank you very much for spending a little time with me. And uh, have a blessed week, Iowa.